0: Well, last week, the reason I had you do this is, last week, six of the elders from Grace attended a conference, and we were talking about membership and what it means to be a member of a church, and one of the challenges that we discussed about our own congregation is that we are not exactly a, a neighborhood church. I'm not sure there are a lot of neighborhood churches around anymore, um, but it might be a misnomer to call our congregation Grace Baptist Church of Millersville. We might be more accurately described as the Grace Baptist Church that meets in Millersville. Uh, Building is here, but most of the church is is not. Um, That's a challenge for us. And the reason it's a challenge for us is because as we think about what the book of Acts says about what sort of work we're to be about, our calling. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to represent him starting where you live and extending out. This is what Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses where you are, Jerusalem, And in the neighborhood around you, Judea, or the region around you, and in Samaria, a little further out, and the whole parts of the earth, the uttermost part of the earth, the ends of the earth. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of scripture that encourages you to ask this question. Here's the question this passage encourages us. What would it take to make you give up on this mission? Or, or to put it another way, what will it take to stop you from faithfully representing Jesus Christ in your zip code? Now, I ask that question. That's an odd way to ask the question, I know, because most of the time we don't. We're not worried about stopping, or we're not worried about slowing down. Our challenge, isn't it, most often, to encourage one another to start to be more active and more faithful in representing Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we need to make progress in, in at least living a life so that the people who live around you and the people who work with you at least know that you're a Christian. So our concern usually is with starting, not with stopping. Isn't it interesting that the fact that, that when I ask what will it make you to st- make you stop, it's such an upside-down question for us. It really shows us How far off from the book of Acts we sometimes are. What will it take to make you stop, to make you give up on this mission that we have together? Uh, We usually spend uh, one day a summer at one of the local amusement parks as a family. One day, the summer we go. Uh, We have kind of outgrown Dutch Wonderland. And last year we went to, or this past summer, we went to Hershey Park together. And my daughters are very excited because they are tall enough to ride most of the big roller coasters. And since I lost the coin toss, I had to ride with them. So uh, you know how this is like or what this works like. You get in line and you wait and wait and wait and wait. And then you go and you sit down in this plastic molded seat. And you squeeze into the seat, and they lower these bars upon you. They buckle, bolt, and strap you in. And then the train leaves the You pull it down, and then if it's just not far enough, if you still can breathe, they come and push it harder so you can't anymore. And then you leave the station, and you go on the track, and all the roller coasters that go up, they sound exactly the same, don't they? Tick, 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 tick. And you ride up this car up into the sky, and you see the ground get further and further away, and the clouds get closer and closer and closer. Tick, 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 tick. tick, You ride up to the top, and then all of a sudden there's this moment when when you crest the top of silence. Tick, 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 and it stops. And then wham, you plummet down to the ground as fast as possible. Now, I ask, what would it take to, if, when that train is flying down the hill, what would it take to stop that, that train, that car? Oh, some tremendous brakes, right? When the Lord Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, he put us on this trajectory. He's sending us down, and he has no interest at all in stopping. He has no interest at all in us slowing down. He has an interest, in fact, in us bracing the speed, embracing the speed on which this mission takes us. What would it take for you to give up on this mission? It's a question for us to consider as we look at a section of scripture in Acts chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 5 with me this morning. Acts 5, I'm going to read from verses 12 through 26. We're actually going to look at half of a story, half of a scene that begins the next major turning point in the book of Acts. And the reason that I want you to show, I want you to see from this text this morning something. I want you to see God's determination, his own determination that his church fulfill her mission. He's at work to support and guide and motivate and empower us. And there are two ways that this text shows us that God is determined. God has determination that the church will fulfill her calling. Now, let's read the passage. Again, half of the story. We'll look at the next half, Lord willing, next week. And then um, we'll we'll talk about, we'll show you these things from the Bible. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. This is what Scripture says. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together then Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find him there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this from the report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. I don't know what would it take for you to stop representing Christ faithfully, but it is clear from this passage that God has absolutely no interest in stopping at all. Uh, In fact, here are two clear signs of that. First, he empowers signs and wonders that establish his messengers. He empowers signs and wonders that establish his messengers. Now, that's a pretty deliberately... Worded sentence, And it's one that's supposed to help us as we think about this summary paragraph in verses 12 through 16 about signs and wonders. What are they for and what do they do? We have a lot of confusion about that in uh, the Church of Christ. The text indicates two things to us, I think, about these miracles. First of all, they're centered on the apostles. That is, they're mediated very carefully and very specifically through these men. These men that the Bible later calls the foundation of the church. These miracles are signs of a duly appointed apostle. They're mediated through these men. They focus in this paragraph. And the focus in this paragraph actually is even more clearly and directly on Peter himself. Now the phrase "signs and Wonders is used elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, it's used in uh, the book of Exodus... To, say, to speak about Moses. Moses is a duly appointed spokesman of God because he does signs and wonders. And, and the type of miracle that's happening here in this passage actually in the New Testament focuses most specifically on three different people. Jesus, Peter, and Paul. And it's interesting. These men are so closely associated with miracles like this that the people around them begin to get, They begin to act a little superstitiously toward them. Remember with Jesus, what was it? Oh, if I only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. Here with Peter, if his shadow will only pass over me, I'll be well. Later in the book of Acts, they start stealing Paul's handkerchiefs. He's working hard as a... a, uh, tent maker and as he sweats he wipes his brow and he sets the cloth down people are stealing them and taking them and laying them on sick people to make them well. That's a rather superstitious view of the miraculous. What's interesting about that is that God is, is very gracious and, and at times he, he responds with healing to this superstition. These signs authenticate their roles as representative from God. And there is no sense in the book of Acts in that this manifestation of God's power would be distributed beyond the apostles. No reason that that we would believe that this should be the norm, that we should expect this. God is establishing them as one-of-a-kind, unique messengers, and he's doing it through these signs, very physical, very visible, very clear signs. The signs and wonders are sent at the, on the apostles, but secondly, what I want you to see is here, they set the stage for preaching and teaching. They, they set the stage for the proclamation of the message. There is a tight connection in the book of Acts between miracles and preaching. They go together. In, in verse uh, 14, um, it says, the people believed in the Lord. They they came to Peter, the the apostles, and they said, Wow, these miracles, they're amazing. And all the apostles said, They are, but let me tell you about Jesus. You need to hear about him. Just uh, offhand here, notice how in verse 14, Luke is very specific men and women believed in the Lord. Luke is uh, emphasizing, and he does this in his gospel, and he does it elsewhere in the book of Acts too, what um, Galatians says about men and women. In the gospel, we are co-heirs. We are—we all stand on level ground before the cross. And Paul, uh, Luke emphasizes this when he talks about: there's men who are believing, there's women who are believing. We all come by the grace of God through Jesus Christ to Him. But that—that's the point here. This—this—the um, message is—is is, uh, drawn attention. It, it's helped by the miracles. Actually, what's happening is that God is answering the prayer that they prayed back in Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts 4, verse 29. Look over at those verses. They pray and they said, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's their concern, boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Speaking and miracles, they go together. And actually what happens in the Bible is we see in the book of Acts even that the message takes priority over the miracles. So the message that's more important than the miracles. I think uh, that's why, in part, we have this apparent contradiction in verses 13 and 14. Did you notice this? Verse 13, no one else dared join them. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more women and men believed in the Lord. Well, which, which is it, Luke? Are people afraid to join them, or are more and more people coming? <laughs> well, it could be, could be it's possible that the, the ones who don't want to join them are other believers who don't want to be with the apostles, because they're afraid of being persecuted, So the apostles go and do public ministry, and the other believers, they hold back and they just meet in homes. That's possible. That doesn't seem to be the tenor, though, thus far, of the book of Acts. I think what's happening here is Luke is describing the tension that people feel. On the one hand, these miracles, they're, they're awesome. And they're drawing people in. But then they get a little close, and they hear, they hear the apostles' message, and it, it's, a, it's a little off-putting. They're a little, they're a little pushed back by this. The message is a more important and more potent force... Than the miracles themselves. The message is taking priority over the miracles. You notice the connection here that that happens when, when, uh, when the angel opens the prison door? It's interesting. What does he tell them to do? He says in verse 20, Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. He does not say, Go and do some more miracles. It's because the message is predominant, the message takes priority over the miracles. I think bearing that in mind helps us understand why sometimes in the book of Acts miracles don't happen. This is a rescue story and uh, there are three rescue stories like this in the book of Acts where God miraculously sets somebody free from prison. Happens here in Acts 5. Ha- happens in Acts chapter 12. We'll come to that in a little bit. Uh, Peter set free from a prison by an angel again. And then in Acts chapter um, Oh, thank 16, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in a Philippian jail. God doesn't use an angel in that instance. He uses rather an earthquake to set them free. Three times it happens. God sets prisoners free until we get to Acts 24. Where where God lets Paul sit in prison in Caesarea for 2 years. Sometimes we read we read the book of Acts And and we say, wow, must have been great living back there. I wonder why, why doesn't God do the miracles today like he did in the book of Acts? That's a fine question to ask as long as you ask the other question. Why didn't God do the miracles that he did in the book of Acts in the book of Acts? Why are there times back then that he didn't do the same thing? Do you wonder if Paul, sitting in prison in Caesarea for two years... Did Paul say, God, um, you set Peter free? You set the apostles free? They didn't even spend a night in prison. You can open these doors. Here I am. Well, while we're thinking about that, um, we're talking about the miraculous. There was a man that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 4. His name is Trophimus. And uh, Paul, at one point in time, left him sick. In the uh, city of Miletus, he left him there under the care of some other brothers and moved on in his ministry. And he says, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. What was Trophimus thinking? Was, was he, could, could, it's possible that he, he could have been thinking to himself, Hey, Paul, can I have some of those handkerchiefs? Just lay them on me and, I, and I'll get better. Why doesn't God always, in the book of Acts, do the same miracles consistently? At the conference that we went to last week, there was a man uh, who spoke for a few minutes. He's from Iran. He's an Iranian pastor. He's pastoring a church of Iranian Christians outside of Iran in another city in the Middle East. And the last time that he and his wife went to Iran, he was imprisoned. uh, For three months, he and his wife were in prison. Why didn't God open those doors? What about Saeed Abedini? Do you know Saeed Abedini? He's an Iranian who's been in prison for two years now. Why hasn't God opened those doors like he did here in Acts chapter 5? Well, I don't want to presume to try to explain. I could not. I'm incapable of, of doing it. Explaining all of God's strategy. But, but since Acts teaches us that the message takes priority over the miracles, I think that's the direction that we should pursue. In Paul's case, if Paul had set him free from the Caesarean prison, Paul would not have been there long enough to appeal to Caesar and would not have gotten an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome. Huh. Up until this time, Paul's been traveling around the Mediterranean preaching the gospel, raising money, and, and working hard as he goes. And now all he does is make one little appeal, and the Roman government pays for him to go. It was wonderful. The gospel gets to Rome through Paul's imprisonment. It, the message takes priority over the miracles. I think that passages like this should help us. Think about the role that signs and wonders play In our own representation of of Jesus See, we're not of this generation of believers Uh, We're far removed from it We spend time reading their stories And reading their testimonies How do those stories function in our lives? I I think sometimes the punch of them Well, sometimes I I think that, that we feel a little apologetic Yeah, God used to do impressive things, but he he doesn't really anymore, so we just believe in Jesus. A little bit apologetic that what's happening here doesn't happen anymore. Or sometimes the punch of these stories is is a little bit dull by familiarity. We've read them over and over and over again, and we're inundated with a lot of other myths and legends and stories and fables. Sure, um, Jesus calms a storm, but we have... For 70 years we've been telling a story about an alien who looks surprisingly human who came to earth when he was a baby and under the influence of the yellow sun he's able to fly and leap tall buildings in a single bound and burn things up with his eyes and see through walls. Or, and we, we've been telling about uh, stories about a, a little boy who was orphaned by his parents. He doesn't know it, but they were killed by an evil wizard. And when he gets to junior high, he goes to a special school where he learns how to do things with his magic wand, and it's impressive and amazing. And there's seven 1,000-page books about this character. So then we read, you know, Jesus touches someone, and the leprosy goes. And we, we, we we're maybe dulled a little bit by these stories. But, but when we pick up this book, we are reading historical events, things that really happened. Luke describes them in specific terms, with specific places and specific um, dates. No one else in the ancient world would write fiction like that. We write fiction like that today, but no one else in the ancient world. If Luke was writing fiction, if he was writing myth or legend, he would have written a generic things. One time, I heard, it seemed like. Uh, somebody once did this. That's how he would have written. But Luke writes these things as if it's as normal as can be. Peter went to the grocery store, he got some bread, he got some milk, he healed somebody from leprosy, and then he went home. I mean, it's just that normal. as he, He writes this description because he's writing history. There's a sense in which we read the stories and they should capture us again. Mark Galley was a pastor of a church in California a number of years ago, and he was teaching a class. There was in their church a group of Laotian refugees. They'd come from Laos, and they were in his church, and the church was supporting them and sponsoring them and caring for them. And he was doing a Bible study with them. So he, he decided to go through the book of Mark, and he came to Mark chapter 4. I mentioned it a minute ago, that story where Jesus calms the sea. Stands up in the middle of a boat. Peace, be still, and the wind and waves die. And Mark Galley did with these Laotian refugees what every uh, Bible teacher does with that story. We metaphorize, that's not a word, but we we metaphorize the story a little bit. And we we, we try to apply it by asking ourselves, now what are some of the storms that you face in your life? It's not a bad way to to apply that, that passage, but he asks these questions. And, and uh, the Laotian refugees were um, silent until one brave soul said, Do you mean to tell me that he actually calmed the wind and the sea in the middle of a storm? Is that actually what you're saying? Mark Galley says, At that point in time, I thought they were going to quibble with me. They were going to argue about the events. So I tried to move them on. Let's not worry about the details of the story. Let's think about the storms that are in your own life. <laughs> Again, nobody said anything. Until finally one of the refugees said, Well, if Jesus calmed the waves and the wind, he must be a very powerful person. Mark Galley said, It was at that moment that I realized that I was the only one in the room who didn't understand the story these miracles that God empowered gave them the platform to preach the gospel, to speak about the God who is the creator, who called the entire world into existence. He's the God who made us and he made us so that we might know him and walk with him and love him and find our highest joys. And serving and honoring him, but we have all disobeyed him, starting from the very beginning. And the Bible is overshadowed and darkened by the awful consequences of living in the world that God made and pretending he does not exist. And in time, that God came to earth, deity wrapped in humanity, and he did astounding things. If Jesus were here in this room this morning, physically, he could restore strength to your weak legs so that you wouldn't need a cane anymore. He could tell the sky to rain. We need more rain, don't we? We're behind. He could tell the sky to rain and it it would rain. He could go to the hospital and he could clear out the oncology wing of the hospital and and pull every cancerous cell from every body there. But all of those miracles are pointers to how he took care of our greatest threat. See, the greatest threat we face is not paralysis or cancer or drought or flooding. It's God's wrath. The God against whom we have rebelled. And Jesus died on the cross as part of God's plan, bearing his father's wrath for us. In love, he paid the penalty that we owed. Death, he died, he rose again, and he offers forgiveness and life to everyone who will receive it by faith. I really believe that Peter did all of these miracles. I believe he did absolutely every single one of them. But more importantly, they point to the fact that the Lord Jesus has come to restore and heal completely and thoroughly. And that's how we read these stories, with with joy. Oh, Lord Jesus, you have done these things through these men, and they point to your supremacy over everything, disease, the demonic nature, and my rebellious heart. See, God empowered these messengers, and by so doing, he communicates his will that the message should continue. Now, notice they'll secondly here what happens in this passage. How else does God in this text tell us that he is determined that his message spread? Secondly, he does it because he foils the plans of his opponents. He foils the plans of his opponents. We're going to look more carefully at this next week, but as we read this passage, this is a story that really makes these men look like rubes. They're really just dolts in this whole story. On uh, verse 17, the high priest and his associates, what do we learn about them? We learn about them that they're jealous. They're not acting because they care for the people or they're concerned about doctrinal purity. They're just jealous. And then at the end of the passage that we read up to verse 26, we find out that they're afraid. They're afraid of the crowd. You cannot lead people if you're afraid of them. And, and they've forgotten how jealousy is so blinding. They're just rude. The whole exchange in this passage makes them look foolish and ineffective. The men they put in prison don't stay there. These religious leaders who walk around so powerfully and so pompously, they're kind of like uh, parents who have toddlers that won't stay in bed. Put your child to bed, and uh, you you walk down the hall or maybe down the stairs, and you turn around, and there they are behind you. They scare you half to death. What are you doing out of bed? Uh, I heard something. Yeah, you're going to hear something. Go back to bed. Right? You take, you tuck them in nicely, and you walk down the hall, and boom, there they are again behind you. By the fifth time that this happens, you realize you need to up your game. Okay, it's time to get even more serious with this. Uh, duct tape? Not duct tape. No, that's not not what I'm recommending at all. No. Just kidding about that. It doesn't work. Uh, no, I. Um, just kidding. Look at this. All their planning and all their scheming is undone. It's undone by God so easily. This passage, it describes in such great detail all their efforts, all the things that they do. They, uh, they put them in prison. Then the next day they call everybody together, all the chief priests and elders, and they gather together and they send somebody to the prison and they come back. All the doors were locked. The guards were there. Nobody was there. This long description of their actions and, and what God, in like five words, unblow, uh, blows it over. An angel came and opened the door. They're scheming, they're working like crazy, and God pff, blows over their plans. This is not hard. God is, is, is ripping apart, shredding their plans just so, so easily. God wants the message to spread. He wants it to spread in Jerusalem. He wants it to spread beyond Jerusalem. He wants it to spread to the ends of the world. There's more to uncover in this text, and we're going to do so in the next week, Lord willing, but it makes you ask, what does it take to stop you? What's going to sideline you from representing Christ faithfully? Maybe you're afraid of what people are going to say or, or do. We're going to read the rest of the book of Acts. We'll find out what they can do. They can mock you. They can beat you. They can put you in jail. They can behead you. But you know, for people who really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, none of those things are final or determinative. In fact, if they behead you for speaking about Jesus Christ, the moment they do, you will be more alive than you have ever been in your whole life. See, the church rolls on. Christ put us on this trajectory. What's stopping you? You could list a lot of reasons, probably. But you put them next to this book, and you think, they don't weigh very much these reasons, do they? I read a fair amount of letters from missionaries, from outreach partners, people who are serving, um, representing Christ around the world. Some of them are church supports, and some of them uh, we don't. This week I read a letter from a couple. uh, We don't support them as a church, but I get their letters. They're serving in a a difficult place overseas. And uh, they wrote in this letter about how they're learning the language and and what they're doing. And they've been there a couple of years. And um, one of the things I noticed, I have this trend in these letters, if you look at them, is... Our outreach partners, as they live in France and uh, Germany and in South America and outside of the United States, they write these letters in an effort to demonstrate to you that the investment that we're making in them is worth it. So I always include, uh, this week I had an opportunity to, to, to talk to my cab driver about what it means to follow Jesus, and it was, it was great. Or uh, uh, please pray for my contact with my translator, I, or my, my language tutor. I, I speak with them three times a week, and I'm really trying to teach them uh, to share uh, about the Bible with them. There's, there's this constant effort to say, look, what you're, the investment you're making in sending me here is worth it. You keep sending the money, keep praying for me, because I'm a good investment as a representative of Jesus Christ here. What would happen if you had to write your own letter? God has strategically placed me in the 7516 zip code. And I'm taking advantage of these opportunities to represent him well. I'm so grateful for your support. I'm, I'm grateful that God has placed me by his sovereignty in the 17584 zip code because it gives me an opportunity to talk to the people I see at, at stores and, and it gives me a, a chance to magnify his grace. Could you justify your presence where you live? Show that it's a worthy investment, that, that you being in 17601 was a good plan on God's part as he put you there to represent him well? What is stopping you? Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we come before you and we revel in this truth in your word of how enthusiastic, how um, determined you are to see that your word and your message about your son be spread. We're going to learn, Father, how you use even persecution to, to get your church to move. Lord, we confess that we, uh, we fail often. We fail often because we're afraid or we feel ill-equipped or it's inconvenient Thank you for your mercy, your kindness to us. But, Lord, I do, I do thank you for all of these homes that are spread out in our region. They're in Willow Street and Peckway and Conestoga and Mountville and Landisville and Millersville and Lancaster. Lord, I pray that you would make us followers of Jesus Christ that are worthy to live in the neighborhoods in which we live. That we would be increasingly effective at representing you well um, where we are and where we work and where we shop and where we worship. You are determined. Let us follow in your wake in the trajectory that you have set. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.